Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. I hope you believe that. Amen. Amen. In the last service, Pastor Nyron was here in the last service with that song and his inner Jamaican was just coming out all over the place and I saw some of my brothers and sisters from Nigeria and various in sundry places getting happy with that song. I got happy with that song and I'm a white boy of Irish descent. That's all right. That's getting me ready to go back to Africa in July. I can't wait. Praise the Lord for that song, that feel and the joy, the joy, the joy that knows that God's got us. He does. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, stand right back up. We're going to look at the scripture today in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 3 through 10 uh, together. Pastor uh, Mason is out on the West Coast. He's preaching probably in another 50 minutes or so at Epiphany LA today. Amen. We're excited about that. Pastor Kurt's out there with him, and Vernon Mobley Jr., the Rev, the young Rev, is out there as well. And they're also out at a youth workers conference, an urban youth workers conference, and bringing some of what God has done to Epiphany to a larger swath of the body of Christ and uh, the wisdom and experience that we've learned here as part of that. So be in prayer for them. But turn, if you have it in your Bibles, if you don't, look up. On the screen, we're going to read together 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 3. Let's read. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. I'm gonna to talk today, it's something to go from that celebration song to this scripture, but 
Uh, we're going to celebrate before it's done, but the title for today is How to Stop Being a Greedy Christian. How to Stop Being a Greedy Christian. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the celebration of the great God that we serve. Have your way, O oh God, we pray, in everything today, Lord. Guide uh, our time together and may your people be uh, more ready to glorify your name in their lives and with their lips, even because of coming together today as a body of Christ. Be with us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I'm going to show a clip. Actually, I'm not. They are. We're going to show a clip in just a minute from one of my favorite movies in the world. The name of the movie is What About Bob? Some of y'all know What About Bob. Now, I have to say this in advance. If you are a social worker or a therapist, I apologize right now for showing this clip. Because like, this is your worst nightmare come true. Uh, the, the story in the movie is about a man who is extremely neurotic and has all kinds of problems. At the end of the movie, you find out he probably has less problems than his therapist. But uh, his name is Bob Wiley. He's played by Bill Murray in the movie. And in the clip we're about to see, uh, Bob Wiley has just kind of discovered a little bit before this that Finally, he's found the one person on earth that can help him, that can give him what he needs. No one else can do it. And, and so he meets with the therapist uh, whose name is Dr. Leo Marvin. And then what happens is Dr. Marvin has to go away on vacation for a month and Bob just can't deal with it. So what Bob does is he figures out through all these crazy means where he's gone away on vacation and he follows him to vacation. The patient follows his therapist and now in the scene you're gonna see, he confronts his therapist. This is what happens. But don't be mad. Bob, your behavior is completely inappropriate. You're angry. No, no, I don't get angry. Well, you're upset. <laughs> I don't get upset. Well, then let's have a little talk. Bob, I do not see patients on vacation ever. How many ways can I make that clear? Now, what I'd like you to do is to get on this bus and go back to New York. I can't. I'm totally paralyzed. I'm all locked up. You got yourself here. Barely. Well, getting back will be therapeutic. But can't we just have a little talk? Bob, you are testing my patience. Come on. I've come so far. Bob, I'm baby-stepping. I'm, I'm doing the work. I'm baby-stepping. I'm not a slacker. Listen to me. Check Listen. it out. Look at I'm in really bad shape. Come on, please. Bob, please. Bob. Give me. Give me. Give me. I need. I Bob, need. Bob. I need. Listen, I need. Bob. Give me. Give okay, me. Okay. Please. All right. All right. Please. All right. All right. It's 2 o'clock. Go to the bus station, buy yourself a ticket home, and then... Wait for me in that coffee shop. You'll meet me? I'll call you in two hours. Oh my God, you're the greatest. No, 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 just, just you have to promise me that you will buy your ticket and go home. Absolutely. I'm gonna do it, do it right now. All right, I'll call you at four o'clock. You couldn't possibly make it 3.30, could you? None of us wants to think that we are Bob Wiley. But I wonder sometimes when God sees me, how much he sees not what I think of me, but he sees 
that Bob Wiley. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. I wonder how much he sees my neediness, my uh, wanting so many things, wanting what I don't have. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. I think about myself even from a child remembering good Christmases when my parents got me a bunch of the stuff that was on my list, maybe not everything, but a bunch of things. We had stuff for Christmas that was a blessing. But by a day or two after Christmas, I wanted something more. It wasn't enough. I remember in my high school years, I played basketball, I played baseball, I did well in school. Um, I had a good number of friends, but in every area of my life, whether it was in athletics, there was someone who was better, and I wanted what they had. There was someone who was smarter, who excelled a little bit more. Probably they studied harder, too, but I just wanted to get the best grades, but I didn't quite get the best grades. And even though I had good friends, I, there was someone who's more popular, who's more of the in-crowd person. I want to be that person. The neediness. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. Now what I want to tell you is that when I came to Jesus Christ, uh, right after high school, my first year of college, I came to Christ. What I'd love to tell you is all that neediness, all that greediness just went away. But y'all know I'd be lying, right? If it went away, it went away for about 18.3 seconds and then it came back. Uh, because it, it's, it's a real struggle in real life. Now, when you look at Bob Wiley, you may think just he's a, a, a needy person. But what I'm talking about is not just neediness, but actual greediness. And that's what we're going to look at in the scripture here today. So let me talk about greediness a couple ways so we understand what we're talking about. Greed is first of all the sinful desire of the flesh to have more than what it has. Because greed flows out of a sinful heart, by definition, it's never satisfied with what it has, even when it has more than what it wanted to have, before it wanted to have it, because it always wants what it doesn't have. That's the nature of greed that flows out of a sinful heart. Let me put it this way. Simply, greed is material, relational, and spiritual polygamy. Greed says, okay, I've been praying for this. I've been working for this. I wanted this. I've just wanted this. But when I get it, it's not enough. I need more. I need different. I need more love to say that this is just an issue back in Ephesus. Paul is writing this letter of 1 Timothy. I'm trying to say this word right, to his young bull. Did I say that right? He's writing the letter to his young bull, Timothy, at Ephesus. He left him behind because stuff is going on and the, the church is getting jacked up there. So he writes this letter to him uh, because... He begins to see these problems in the church, but greed is not just a problem in first century Ephesus, but it's a problem in 21st century Philadelphia. 
America, and as a matter of fact, in the whole world, every culture, every people group, every time since Genesis 3 has struggled with greed, wanting something that God has not yet given. It is the common lot of fallen humanity. In particular, in first century Ephesus, Paul is dealing with a church that is in a very particular culture. Ephesus was the greatest city in the province of Asia Minor. Today it would be modern day Turkey, and it was the center uh, of a particular kind of worship, and the goddess that they worshiped was called Artemis of the Ephesians. She was referred to in Ephesus as Artemis, our savior. You know someone else is a savior, right? It's a problem. And, and Ephesus was uh, the place where the great temple of Artemis was. It was a huge temple. It was larger than a football field. It was overlaid with gold and with silver. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a place where people would come from all around the world just to experience the glory of Artemis of the Ephesians in the great city of Ephesus. And for them, it was not only the center of their religious life, but it was the center of their cultural identity and it was the center of their economy. And so if you read chapter 19 in the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul was at Ephesus for over two years. And the Bible says that he taught daily. And he taught so much that everyone in the province of Asia knew about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Acts chapter 19, something strange happens. In Acts chapter 19, there begins to be this uproar and this riot that takes place. There's a silversmith there in Ephesus named Demetrius, and he gets together with other artists. And what they do is they make uh, these little uh, idols of Artemis and they sell them. And what is happening is that this preaching of Jesus, which says he is the Savior, is cutting into the business and the pocketbooks of the artisans and the business people of Ephesus so much so that they begin to rouse people up and get them in an uproar. And the Bible says that for two hours, all of Ephesus was screaming and yelling at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. It was a riot that was going on there. It reminds me of the raucous craziness of a Super Bowl parade for the Eagles, along with the anger and the vitriol of, of riots from L.A. and Rodney King back in the day, if you remember that. Because what's going on there in this riot is that it has not just a, a celebration aspect to it, but it has an anger about it because this Jesus preaching is cutting into my money and making my money funny. And I don't like that. And so we see this in the culture of Ephesus is that 
greed is right in the midst of the culture, but that's one problem. But the bigger problem Paul has to deal with is that has bled right into the church. Aren't you glad that in the 21st century in America or wherever you are at in the world, that greed is never caught in the church at all? You never see a greedy preacher. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You never hear a sermon for the 87th time about sowing and reaping into my ministry and my stuff. You don't see that anymore. But that's the easy stuff to see. But we've got to begin to see where greed takes place in our own lives. And that's what we're going to see as we look at these verses. So let's dig into the passage. There's two things I want you to see today. First of all, the origin of greed. Where does it come from? And we'll look at that as false teaching. And then we want to see what the antidote for greed is. So let's dive in the origin of greed. Greed always starts with believing a lie. Bob Wiley believed that the only person in the world that could save him and help him was Dr. Leo Marvin. And so whatever he had to do, anything he had to do, he was going to do it to track that man down. And when we believe lies that set us off from the truth of the gospel, that there is something, that there is someone, that there is something that I need that's going to establish my identity, my value, and my worth. We will do anything to get that thing. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. We become Bob Wiley all over again. The origin of greed is always believing false teaching, believing those lies. And 1 Timothy is all about dealing with false teaching. Turn with me to chapter 1 from the very beginning of this letter that Paul writes to Timothy. He's dealing with false teaching. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. He goes on in chapter 4, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, and says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. And then he goes on to talk about some of the nuances of what this heresy looks like. So let's take that. This is the backdrop of 1 Timothy. He's dealing with the fact that false teaching has crept into the church. And you look at the tone of this letter. It's an urgent letter. And so we come to chapter 6 in the verses that we're looking at today. Let's look again at verse 3. He says, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Stop right there. It's been the case so far throughout 1 Timothy that 
Paul is warning Timothy and he's warning the church that this false teaching can absolutely destroy the church. We should not think, you should not think, that because you're in Epiphany Fellowship, you're immune from it. Because in the atmosphere of our culture and the wider church world, it's easy. And even in the sinful places and cracks and crevices in your own life, it's easy to imbibe some of that false doctrine that leads us away from Christ and from godliness. And that's what Paul deals with at the end of verse 3. He talks about a, a, a teaching that promotes godliness. The true teaching of Jesus Christ promotes godliness, but this false teaching leads us away from godliness. And godliness is one of the major themes in this letter. I'm just going to look at it briefly. If you put the scriptures up on there, but you'll see in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, and we're reading in chapter 6 as well, that godliness is woven throughout the scripture here. I just want to read from 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourselves in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way. What he's saying is that the whole manner and trajectory of the Christian life should be leading us towards true godliness. But what is happening through this false teaching creeping into the church is that it is undermining godliness and bringing us in a different direction. So he says, if you look in verse 4, that the one who does this, he says, he's conceited. And he understands nothing. To be conceited means to be deluded. It means to be blinded by your own arrogance. It's an unfounded belief in yourself that's unhinged from reality. Let, let, let me put some legs on that. In my BC days, before Christ days, I had a little habit that I liked. And it, 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 it dealt with taking a spirit into my body that didn't start with the name holy. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. So for me, that was through alcohol. It was through drinking. And listen, that was the history of my family, so I'm just keeping up the family tradition. I'm good. But I can remember getting just drunk and plastered on too many occasions as a very young person as a teenager uh, and 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 sometimes what you would see when you're in that environment is people starting to act a little crazy anybody I know none of y'all have ever seen this you were born holy from the womb you were good so I'm just talking about me I'm not talking about anybody else but there was a terminology that we used back in the day that I've heard called beer muscles does anyone know what beer muscles are I see that head. Well, yes, you see. Yeah, I'm looking for a hand. I want to say I see that hand. Yes, beer muscles. Y'all know what beer muscles are. Beer muscles are when you are inebriated and your mind is in an altered state that makes you think that you can do something that you can't do. In particular, usually it makes a little dude 
think that he can beat up a much bigger, much stronger, much more skilled dude because I'm mad at you and I know I can do something about it. And that's what we call beer muscles. I've seen beer muscle fights and they're not pretty. Thank God I've never been in one of those fights. Uh, but in a beer muscle fight, the worst part of it is that one dude who has no business fighting the other dude is getting beat down bad and he's knocked to the floor and everybody's saying, bro, stay down, stay down. But beer muscles say, nah, I'm going to hit him with one. I know I can get him. And you get up again and get knocked down again. And a beer muscle fight is an ugly, ugly fight. You end up with face messed up and ribs broken. And it's like, what are you doing, dude? That's beer muscles. Listen, what alcohol does to corrupt your natural judgment is only minor compared to what conceit does to your spiritual judgment. You see, in a beer muscle fight, you might get beat down because you think you're stronger than someone else, but, but spiritual conceit leads you to a place where you believe you don't have to take instruction from God anymore. You can figure it out yourself. You can do it yourself. Paul goes on in these verses, in verse 4. He says about this conceited person, he understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. Have you ever been in an argument with a conceited person who no matter how clearly you demonstrate the error of their argument, they're not hearing it? You ever been there? Now, have you, I, I, I don't want to ask y'all, but have you ever been the one on the other side who is the conceited one? You probably, many of you have been on both sides of that, right? And it is so frustrating because you can painstakingly show them point by point the error of their argument, a, a, a foolproof case. And the attitude is, don't bother me with the facts. And, and, the, and, the, and the idea is, I am going to talk about every word that you use. I'm going to parse every word, and I'm not going to give in, no matter how much I actually know you're right. I'm not going to give in. That is what conceit does. Here, here's how bad it is. You're having an argument with someone who is lost in their own conceit, and they're going to argue with you about the stop that you made in your argument and say, it seems like you put a semicolon there, and it should have just been a colon. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is an oral argument, not a written argument. It's just foolishness. But that is what conceit looks like there is a majoring on minor things and there is a putting off to the side that which is truly important so Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23 and verse 23 he's talking to the Pharisees and he says you tithe mint dill and cumin and what he's talking about these are the smallest kinds of 
spices. And in the Old Testament law, it says we should tithe on all these things. He says, you are so fastidious about the way that you tithe on the smallest little things. He says, but you neglect justice. You neglect mercy. You neglect faithfulness. Jesus says, you are all about these little things in your conceit and false teaching and lostness, and you forget the things that are nearest to the heart of God. False teaching leads us away to God, away from God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. How far will it lead you from God? It'll lead you this far. 2 Timothy 3, 6, again, Paul is writing to Timothy. He's still at Ephesus, and the problem is persisting. And he talks about the false teachers this way. He says, for among them, the false teachers, are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions. Verse 7, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that a pathetic state to be in? I pray that none of us find themselves there where we are people of whom it could be said, they're always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, never finding the solid rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can lean on and live out of, Greed is fueled by knowledge that is not knowledge. Greed is empty fruit that promises substance but can never fulfill on the promise. So look again in chapter 6 at verse 4. He says in the middle of that verse, From these... Come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions. Verse 5, constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. You see what he does at the end there? He says that godliness is the thing that's going to give you material wealth in this world. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But that's what's going on here. Listen, if you can point out what's wrong in first century Ephesus and know where their greed was, that's a good start. But that's not going to help you unless you can find where greed is taking root in your own heart. That's what you have to attack. That's what you have to deal with. And so let's look at some ways that you can see how your own heart is being corrupted by greed. First of all, it's being corrupted by greed when you have an envious preoccupation with others. Look in verse 4. He uses the words envy and evil suspicion. Here's a question. How much do you live your life in comparison to others instead of godly contentment? How much is your joy contingent upon how your position relates to someone else 
and not on what God is actually up to in your own life. You see, we got to be careful with that, particularly in an age of virtual reality and virtual friendships. It's easy to look online. Look, no one puts their messy mess online. At least most people don't. Some people actually do, but most people don't. So if you go online and look at my Facebook life, it, I, I'm going to tell you right now, it's better than my actual life. Right. You see the highlights. You see my son graduating from college. You see, you know, a service at Epiphany and God moving. You see the good stuff that happens in my life. What you don't see is me crying and struggling in the middle of the night. What you don't see on Facebook is my wife and I having what I would call detailed and and, and vehement discussions about things that we're not in complete agreement on. You might call that when we argue, but, but you can call it whatever you want. You're not going to see that on Facebook. What you see on Facebook is a virtual reality. And we've got to be careful, all of us, that that doesn't lead us to have an envious preoccupation with others. Secondly, you know you're struggling with greed when you have a need to put others down. Look again in verse 4 and 5 at these words that are used Quarreling, slander, constant disagreement. If you're developing an inability to rejoice in the blessings of others, unless you can somehow come out on top, that's a sign of greed at work in your life. The question to ask is, are you able to consistently rejoice in seeing others succeed and receive blessings in their lives. I know I was studying for this message a couple of weeks ago, and something came up in my heart, an envy and a jealousy of a person that I know and who I could see God's hand on their life. And I began in my heart to see envy and jealousy over this person. And I had to stop and say, God, help me. What's wrong with me? What's going on? That was real. 38 years into my walk with Jesus, I wish it was done, but I'm 38 years in saying, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. I can't see that person elevated in a way. Scared me, but it shouldn't have. It's just part of dealing with sin in our lives. But it was like a big red light going off on the dashboard of my soul. Brothers and sisters, you need to pay attention to the red lights on the dashboard of your soul. Thirdly, the last thing under this, you know you're struggling with greed when you have a distorted view of godliness. This is big. Look, at the end of verse 5, he says, those who are the false teachers imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Now that statement right there represents a fundamental distortion in what godliness is. God is replaced at the center by myself. In other words, if I see this as godliness, the authentication of godliness in my life is the witness of me being blessed, not of me being a blessing to others. 
I'm consumed with myself. Now listen, we may say, well, we, we know better. We're at Epiphany Fellowship. We're not prosperity theologians. We're not duped into all that stuff. But my guess is that everyone in this room, somewhere in a little corner of your head, in your mind, you've got a little prosperity theologian that is speaking to you. And I've got a little prosperity theologian speaking to me. You say, no, I know better than that. I'm not into that stupid stuff. But let me ask you, how does this work in your life? Have you ever been in a place and at a time when things in life are not going well, when things are not working out, when there's difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, and the voice inside your head is saying, you know, if you were really right with God, it wouldn't be like this. If you had your stuff together, if God really cared about you, and if you were right with him, it wouldn't be like that. What is that? That is Ephesians 6, the end of verse 5. That is imagining that godliness is a way to material gain. It's saying that if things are right with me, that everything is going to be good. Like God's main concern should be the comfort of Larry. God's main concern should be that nothing, no hardship ever comes to me. And if I'm godly, then that's what's going to happen and I'll have material gain. That is prosperity theology. It's the kind that seeps in under the radar on us. And it leads to a disorientation of life. He says in verse 5 that the people, these false teachers, he says, are depraved and deprived of the truth. The word depraved there means uh, causing something to be spoiled. What it's talking about specifically in this context is moral corruption and depravity. You see that in the 2 Timothy verse that we read, 2 Timothy 3.6. You see this corruption and depravity that comes through a, a depraved mind that has latched on to this false teaching. And what it does is it again, gives us this spiritual polygamy that's never satisfied with what we have and leads us away from God's design. Greediness and godliness can never coexist. So that's the problem, and that sounds pretty bad, and it is. But what's the solution? Well, the antidote for greed is godly contentment. Look with me at verse 6. I love this verse. In verse 6, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I love that verse. It's short and it's easy to memorize. If you haven't memorized it already, do that this week. But godliness with contentment is great gain. What is Paul saying? He says, as bad as this greediness in your soul is, as much as it will lead you away from true godliness, God has a one-two punch that will take care of it every time. He says, the first punch is godliness, and then with contentment is great gain. It will take away this compulsion towards greed. God is able to deal with your greed through these two things through godliness and contentment. So first, let's look at what godliness is. The word that is used there, when you look it up in a Greek lexicon that we translate godliness, the Greek dictionary says 
that the word means an awesome respect accorded to God. An awesome respect accorded to God. Now, the word awesome doesn't mean much to us anymore. Most people in this room might think that a mango gelati at Philly Flaves is awesome. Oh, it's so awesome. We use awesome for anything and everything. But when we see a word in the definition of it uh, in the Greek New Testament that says that this is an awesome respect for God, that means a lot more than a mango water ice. Or excuse me, water ice. It means more than that. It means so much more than that. It means that we hold God in such respect, in such esteem. We hold him so high that nothing and no one can ever compare to him. Asaph says it this way in Psalm 73. He says, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Why, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. David says it this way in Psalm 42, familiar verses. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants after you, my God. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet God? Godliness transforms your desire away from things that make much of you and begins to give you a desire for things that make much of God. It replaces you as the center and puts God in the center. The second part of the one-two punch is contentment godliness with contentment he says is great gain that word contentment was used by stoic philosophers in greece and in rome and what it meant to them uh, contentment was a virtue of being self-sufficient if someone was contented they no longer felt any pangs of need from anything outside them and it was because of their own willpower that they no longer had any desire for anything else so the the idea of contentment among the stoic philosophers was to be in a place where you don't need anything and the power for that is your willpower and your strength but that's not the way the word is used by God in the Greek New Testament. It doesn't speak of self-sufficiency. It speaks of God-sufficiency. So here, as Paul uses the word contentment, contentment means to have your mind set on God in such a way that you trust Him for all your needs. Jeremiah earlier talked about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And that is hard for us, but that is what we come back to with contentment. God, no matter what the circumstance is, I know and I believe that you have me. 
It doesn't mean just being passive. It means as well that you're going to work towards a greater goal for God's glory. You don't just allow things to happen and not say anything, but you deal with God and you trust him in the midst of it. Godly contentment doesn't harp on your need, on your lack, on your want. It doesn't major on murmur or cosign your complaint. Godly contentment places its hope squarely on God and looks to him to be the one to change any and every circumstance for his glory and if he leaves it where he is godly contentment says you are wise and i trust in you so that's nice to know but how do we get there how do we get there to godly contentment how do we find the root of godly contentment in our life let's look back at these verses number one if we're going to have godly contentment, we need to stop focusing on stuff. Look at verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. I thought back a while ago, I've been to over 300 funerals in my life. That's a lot of funeralization. That's a lot of funerals. But I've never seen in any one of those funerals behind the hearse, a U-Haul with stuff in it doesn't exist because it wouldn't do any good. And what the scripture is saying here in verse 7, there's nothing that you're going to take out of here. Why are we so focused on things that won't make it forward with us? Not only stop focusing on stuff, but also be thankful for what you have. Look at verse 8. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. That's about the most countercultural statement that we could make in 21st century America, right? If I've got a little sum-sum to eat, if I've got some ramen noodles, and if I got some old stuff from the Goodwill or the Whosoever Mission, if I've got something to wear so that I'm not walking around naked, he says, I'm good. I'm content with that. My God, we're not close to that, are we? But he's saying that we need to be thankful for what you have. How much time do you spend thinking about, complaining about, grumbling about what you don't have? Contented people develop the discipline of thankfulness in their lives. You are daily giving thanks to God for the good gifts he's given you. Thirdly, for godly contentment to take root in your life, you need to refuse to find security in money. Verses 9 and 10. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs i can promise you one thing if you're looking to money to find your security and contentment in life you will never have enough of it 
It is a virtual impossibility. The love of money, it says, is the root of all sorts of evil. Jesus said it this way, you cannot love God and love money. He said it just that simply. And so if money is your passion and love, you will fall away from a dynamic and powerful relationship with God. Last thing, if you are going to root yourself in godly contentment, you need to agree with the teaching of Jesus. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 he says, anyone who teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's conceited and understands nothing. So we need to be those who wholeheartedly agree with the teaching of Jesus Christ. And most of us say, I agree, I agree. How much can you agree with something that you don't know? And we think because we come on a Sunday or even praise God, to a life group, maybe you're even in a DNA group, that doesn't mean that you automatically know this word, that you get this teaching. It means that you need to have your nose in the book. It means that studying the word of God, an amazing privilege that we have here. Most of you have Bibles and many of you have many Bibles and you've got Bible apps and all these things to study the word of God. And yet many times we're not doing that. He says we need to obey the teaching. We need to know the teaching. And to know the teaching is also to know the teacher. Because you can agree with things mentally in your mind, but you're not going to walk out godliness because you cannot apart from the power that comes from God himself in relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself, as I close, the God-man, learned contentment as he faced the horrifying reality of his own crucifixion Luke 22:44 records Jesus as being in anguish and it says he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood Jesus didn't look at the cross and say hey look what I'm doing tomorrow this is great says he was in anguish. His sweat became like drops of blood. Hebrews 12 and 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not learn contentment in an ivory tower of ease. Jesus learned it in the midst of, of the crushing cruelty of his own crucifixion. Jesus had to not only look at the cross, but he had to look past the cross. He had to look past the shame. He had to look past the pain. He had to look past the humiliation. He had to look past the torment. He had to look past all of those things and see on the other side the good hand of his father who loves him. He had to see on the other side men, women, and children, countless number that can never be numbered, who would now, because he went through the way of the cross, would be a part of his family forever. 
and ever. Jesus looked past his pain and he saw your provision. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to say, let's be like Jesus. We should do that too. But if you're going to follow Jesus in godly contentment, it means you're going to have to change the way you look at things in your life. You're going to need to see some of your disappointments as his appointments. Some things that you just don't like at all. My wife and I were both engaged to other people before we found each other. Getting disengaged, I guess that's what you call it, is not fun. Now, other people know and you're beginning to plan and, you know, all of this and, uh, and now it doesn't work out. There's nothing fun about that. There's nothing that I liked or Harriet liked in her own life about that. But praise God for disengagement in Jesus' name, right? 33 years later, I'm glad that homeboy, that joker, dropped that girl. Amen. Actually, she dropped him. She dropped him, and she needed to drop him. And, and so I'm glad for that. I asked another lady to marry me, and she just looked at me and said, Nah, I don't think so. I was messed up. God was so good to me. He saved that one for me, little Miss Harriet. Love that girl. But we've got to look at disappointments and see what is God doing here. Not only that, but you're going to have to see some of your biggest failures as some of God's best faith builders. If you just focus on the fact that you did not get your way, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. No, God, what are you doing here? What is your purpose? I don't like this. This isn't comfortable. This isn't what I planned on. But God, you are not far from me. You said I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. You're right here. You know and you love me. You're here. Last thing is sometimes you need to, you need to see that your dying dream is a seedbed for God's divinely directed destiny for your life now be careful I know that sounds like prosperity preaching right there but but it's not what it is is understanding that though you may have a dream God has something better for you than you ever imagined I have a friend in Malawi Pastor Delitzo Numeri and talking to Pastor Delitzo um, he talks about Growing up as a young man and having one goal in life, and that was to become a professional soccer player. And Delitzo had skills. Am I saying that right? He had skills, mad skills. Maybe that's better. He, he was fast, and he could do all these things with a soccer ball, and he was a whiz. And in every level that he played, he absolutely excelled. And so being a professional soccer player for him was not just a crazy dream like being in the NBA was for me, but it was a realistic dream given his ability and what he could do. But in the course of time, as a young man, he had an injury that derailed that whole plan, his dream died quickly it was over but here's the beautiful thing with this young man God began to do a work in his soul 
And God began to put in him a hunger and a thirst for two things, for the word of God and to know God, but then also to share the love of Christ with anyone and everyone who would listen. God arranged it so that he was able to go to a Bible college, which is very rare for someone in a country like Malawi. But every time he got to go off campus, he would go out to the villages. He would go out to people anywhere and everywhere. Anyone who would listen, he told them the good news of Jesus Christ. And because his dream died, but because he grabbed hold of God's better destiny for his life, many, many people, men, women, and children, now are people who know the love of Jesus Christ and who are in his kingdom. In the midst of his disappointment, he looked to God and found something even greater. John Newton, the 18th century English pastor who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, had this little tiny prayer that he prayed. It goes like this. Lord, whatever you will. Lord, whenever you will. Lord, however you will. If your life is focused on yourself as the center of all things, that's a nice way of saying, if you're greedy, then I promise you, you'll never pray that prayer. Your prayer will look more like Bob Wiley. I want, I want, I want. I need, I need, I need. But contentment can only and ever be found in the place where Jesus is the true functional center of your Life. Let me end with a scripture from Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 30. You know this scripture, most of you. He says, even though youths may become faint and weary and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. What the prophet is saying through Isaiah is what God wants to say to you. No matter what your circumstance, I'm with you. I've got you. You can trust me and be content in me. I am enough. Godly contentment is great gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of godly contentment. Help us, Lord, to contend for our faith in such a way that we root out anything and everything that would lead us away from you and to think that there is something other than you that will provide for us what in truth only you can provide. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give, and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.